This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And there's something consuming law enforcement in parts of the state. And Rachel, you went to check this out. Yeah, it's especially consuming them out where I was in rural southern Colorado. This is CPR's Rachel Estabrook. And the sheriff's deputy there out in El Paso County told me to be at the parking lot of a fire station where all his guys could meet up together. It's about 25 miles east of Colorado Springs out on the plains, but it feels much further, I have to say. It's basically grassland and some scattered houses as far as the eye can see, and then some wind turbines on the horizon, and then, I guess, Kansas beyond that. Okay, it sounds pretty remote, not the place you might think a lot of law enforcement activity happens. So why were you out there? I wanted to see a black market marijuana bust. Ah, this is the subject of a huge conversation in the state right now about how big the black market is. Exactly. Recreational cannabis has been legal here with dispensaries open for nearly five years. But still, we keep hearing and reading that the black market is thriving. And so I wanted to know, you know, because right now, All these other states are looking at Colorado and wondering how it's going, right? The entire country of Canada is probably going to legalize soon, according to their prime minister. We have been working with our partners across the country on making this happen. And we are going to be moving forward this summer on uh, the legalization of cannabis. So I called a bunch of sheriff's departments and El Paso County said I could go along on a marijuana operation. I got up at what felt like the crack of dawn and drove down to Peyton, Colorado, population 250. Peyton, Colorado. And you met at this fire station. There were about 15 law enforcement officers huddled up there, and they were there to follow a tip, a promising tip that had come in about some suspicious people growing marijuana in a house. And so on Tuesday that week, El Paso County got a warrant to search the house. And on Thursday morning, there we were, rendezvousing before the bust. Deputy Jeff Schultz at the Pasco County Sheriff's Office. My main focus is marijuana. And how often do you do one of these black market operations? We're up to now three a week. Three a week? Yeah, three search warrants a week. On average, he thought. He says they're not focused on people growing marijuana legally for the Colorado market. They're targeting people growing big quantities of cannabis that they plan to take and sell in other states. And I asked what he expected to find at this house. Uh, It depends. There could be nothing there at this point, but based on information we have, there should be a large grow there. Do you expect the people who are operating it to be there? They usually are. Probably 90% of the time they are on scene. So if they are, we will take them into custody and charge them appropriately. How often do you encounter weapons or explosives? Uh, No explosives, but weapons probably about 60% of the time we'll find guns. Mm, Those aren't odds I would like to be walking into a house with. No, but he says that they have never actually been shot at. Okay. Um, But these guys are prepared. They wouldn't let me tape much of what went on as they got ready outside the fire station. But after they talked for a while, they each got in their own truck or SUV, and they made sure their weapons were loaded. I saw one officer checking a big rifle that he put into the car and then was ready to go.
Again, this is just outside Colorado Springs. And has the black market marijuana problem been growing? The Sheriff's Department in El Paso County says the number of illegal grows has increased dramatically in the past two years. They have found up to 650 illegal grows, separate grows, according to the Sheriff Bill Elder. And just a few years ago, it was more like 100. So that's a huge increase, right? Uh, An elder is convinced that legal marijuana is a failed experiment in Colorado. Sheriff, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. These busts you're doing of illegal marijuana, what are you going after exactly? These are not commercial grows because if it is being sold here and it's controlled and we aren't messing with those. These are not the grows that are feeding the Colorado medical or retail consumption market. These are grows that are shipping vast amounts of marijuana out of state. Here's the thing, though. This isn't just about recreational legalization. So he traces it back to when Colorado legalized medical marijuana just as much as recreational. Because the medicinal law, that was Amendment 20 here in Colorado, allowed people to grow dozens and dozens of plants legally in their homes. These caregivers could grow plants for other people. We left a huge loophole in the number of grows that we we would allow and the, the size of grows. I believe that the the market drove that. They found that they could grow in Colorado safely and under the guise of Amendment 20 and load it into semis and drive it to the East Coast. In Colorado, a pound of marijuana is worth roughly $1,500 per pound. On the East Coast, it's worth anywhere from four to 6000 Have you been to, I, I assume you have, but ha- have you been to one of these busts and can you describe it for me? A number of times. I've been to a number of them, one of which, I'll tell you, had roughly 400 plants in it that were about eight feet tall. Each of those plants could have easily produced two pounds of marijuana. The stalks were larger than a soda can and had to be cut down using a chainsaw because they're so fibrous. Um, the odor is unbelievably strong, number one. Number two, it permeates every bit of clothing that you wear. It's just incredible. What do you know about where the marijuana is headed when it's diverted from Colorado? We know quite a bit. We've spent um, a considerable amount of time working with uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration on uh, tracking many of these loads that leave. And so we know with pretty good specificity where they're headed. Like I say, it heads to the East Coast and to Florida. Obviously not going to give you specifics on where it goes. Um, <laughs> but it's, a lot of the other states complain because the amount of marijuana that's leaving Colorado, there's a significant number of Cuban nationals and from other countries in South America, Central and South America, that we find tending these grows. Sheriff, it sounds like this is more of a rural phenomenon than an urban phenomenon in El Paso County. Is that true? Correct. Correct. And tell me why that is. Well, I just think that it's it's harder to detect a grow in a rural environment than it is inside um, the city limits, inside a housing project, for instance. Out in the rural part of the county where um, it's rare to see people a lot of times anyway – 
the odor is more difficult to detect and people tend to keep uh, closer to themselves out there. Can you help us understand how much of, of your time, attention, energy, money goes to enforcing marijuana versus all the other duties that a sheriff's department has to engage in? So I would tell you that 60% of everything we do deals with the jail. You add patrol and wildland fire to it, you're up to about 90% of what it is we do every day. So by the time you've diluted our resources down to what can we do for marijuana, it takes up about 10% of our resources and it's probably about 50% of our problem. So back to the bust. We left the fire station and we're in this convoy. I'm in my own car and they wouldn't let me actually go all the way to the house as they started the bust because of security reasons. You had to stay back? I had to stay back, not quite within eyeshot of the house. So I'm sitting on the side of a dirt road. You can hear some birds chirping. Uh, there's just lots of grassland and big open properties with houses and barns and farms and a green cactus statue to remind you that you're in the West, not, not in Kansas. But before things get too intense there, I just want to ask how big a problem the cannabis black market is statewide, not just in El Paso County where you were hanging out. They're definitely not alone in southern Colorado. Seventy-four people were indicted today in what's being called Operation Toker Poker. It comes after a long investigation into illegal marijuana grows in residential areas and warehouses. And the attorney general said today in a press conference, make no mistake about it, the black market for marijuana is flourishing in Colorado. Now, these piles of marijuana were pulled from multiple homes in Firestone today during a raid by the DEA. As a trend, DEA has observed and, and um, identified hundreds of houses, if not thousands, in the Denver and metro area. Area that are growing uh, marijuana for supply to the rest of the United States. The Boulder County Sheriff says hikers found about 400 marijuana plants growing on a hillside in a remote mountainous area. The state's Department of Public Safety doesn't coordinate bus around the state. So they can't, I can't give you a firm number right, throughout no central the state. Numbers, uh-huh. But the director, Stan Hilke, says he's heard from sheriff's offices and police departments pretty much the same story that we heard from El Paso County. What they have been telling us and what we've seen is that there is more and more evidence that there are more people coming into Colorado and and sort of hiding in plain sight to be able to grow uh, marijuana illegally inside of homes. Some of them start out as legal until the day that they harvest and then uh, take the product out of the state. Some of them don't even bother to go that far. They just start out and grow illegally. And he's talking about the medical marijuana law, which let People grow 99 plants in their house. Exactly. And even though that's been true since the early 2000s, long before Coloradans legalized recreational marijuana, the recreational law kind of opened the doors. It was like hanging a giant flag outside that said, we're open. Colorado loves cannabis. And that just drew people from everywhere. If you talk to uh, police and sheriffs around the state who, who run evidence rooms, one of the things that was told during the ramp up of this is that, you know, sheriffs and chiefs will no longer have to have their evidence rooms filled up with marijuana. What they will tell you is that their their evidence rooms were filled up with more marijuana uh, post-legalization because there was simply an uneducated belief out there that there was much more legal about marijuana than what the actual amendments approved. 
Like people around the country looked at Colorado after recreational legalization and thought it's all legal, no more enforcement. And then they could take advantage of this old law that allowed them to grow lots and lots of plants. Why is law enforcement so concerned about the marijuana leaving Colorado to Florida, to the East Coast, like we heard? Like, why not focus on marijuana being sold illegally in Colorado? Right. I mean, that's their jurisdiction, presumably. I think it's mostly that the marijuana that is being grown illegally on a large scale is getting moved out of the state. We're talking about more than 5,000 cannabis plants already this year just in El Paso County. That's what's been seized. Right. So the sheriffs have found those big quantities of marijuana are headed out of Colorado where it's worth more money. So that's why they're focusing their enforcement there. I think law enforcement is also particularly concerned about the connection to organized crime. We mentioned Cuban connections. And I've heard repeatedly now that a lot of times foreign cartels are connected to these home grows in rural Colorado. That's what investigators have found when they follow these cases. You'd have never known that hearing those chirping birds and seeing the cactus statue. Totally. And I think the other reason that elected officials in particular would be concerned about marijuana moving out of Colorado is that federal authorities have made that a priority nationwide. So the U.S. Attorney General's office under President Obama, actually, even before Trump, said the feds should focus on marijuana that leaves states where it's legal to go to states where it's not. Anything that they can do statewide to crack down on this? Well, just recently, for the first time, the Department of Public Safety under Governor Hickenlooper asked for money for a dedicated black market enforcement unit. And what kinds of things will they do? They'll help out on these busts, essentially. There's a lot of uh, agencies, particularly in the rural parts of the state, that have been unable uh, to work cases that occur in their jurisdictions. And we, we get a lot of requests to help them with doing some investigations on illegal grows and other activity that might be illegal in the, in the marijuana world. They just need more help. Exactly. And to this point, they just the state hasn't really been able to help because enforcement is expensive. And it's interesting because El Paso and some of the counties around it on the southern front range, Pueblo, Teller, which is more towards the mountains, they dedicate more time and money to cracking down than a lot of other counties in the state. So I have to say it's not clear to me whether it's a bigger problem there or whether there are just more people looking for a problem. Like in Teller, their goal is just get out of Teller. And they don't think they'll be able to stop illegal grows everywhere, but they want it out of their county. Oh, that's interesting. I suppose that speaks to the importance of like the state support. Why is it so important to them to move this along? Well, in Teller County, the sheriff's department has heard from people who live in the neighborhoods and say, I can smell this stuff. Can you please do some more enforcement? Um, That's also, you know, a more conservative part of the state down there. And also in Teller County, they found illegal marijuana was draining the county's water and electricity. They live in a place with a lot of fire danger also. So they were concerned about, you know, hash oil explosions, the potential for that. And everywhere, some people in law enforcement say there's a big public safety issue. The crime rate has gone up in El Paso County and statewide since legalization. Now, I will say there is no evidence that directly ties that to marijuana. What we do know is totally piecemeal. In Colorado Springs, the police chief says they've had three murders related to marijuana last year. But Denver has kept its own tally since 2012 and says they've seen no noticeable increase in violent crime related to marijuana, according to the state. 
But if their perception is that it's related to crime, it's certainly motivating them to move it along. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you think someone would try to get a better sense of the scope of this problem? I mean, it sounds like there are a lot of black holes in the data. About the black market. About the black market, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I checked every source I could think of, the state, DEA, to try to get a handle on the total number of busts of illegal grows and things like that. As I said, that's not available. So while the state has to keep track of things legally, like business licenses and stuff, they don't have to keep track of what a DEA spokesman called the other side of the ledger, the cost of enforcing legalization. That's not to say they know nothing. Like, they know seizures of marijuana in the U.S. mail have gone up eightfold. Okay, what wound up happening at this bust? You, you've kept right. this in such suspense. I'm still on the side of the road in a car, right? <laughs> okay. So I had to wait on that dirt road for quite a while. At one point, a woman drove up and she rolled down the window to ask if I needed help. Clearly, they aren't used to seeing a lot of unfamiliar cars or people in that rural area. Uh, but finally, one of the sheriff's department trucks drove up, stopped, Asked me to follow him. So we're coming up to a like a dark green house, two stories, and it just looks like any other house out here. Still six sheriff's department cars in the parking lot. It just looks like a family house. White doors, green siding, a really spectacular view of Pikes Peak. So there's there. There's nothing here. You're kidding. No, I kid you not. So so there's nothing here at all. So they cleaned it up recently. Oh, but there was. There was, yeah. But it's all taken down. The grow is taken down. So nothing here to prove any type of criminal activity or intent. So they're being released. We're going to still search the house and see what we can find. That may lead to something else. Um, but other than that, you know, they're they're free to go. There's nothing to charge them with. No, you said no sign of criminal activity. Well, there was a grow here. There's nothing. There's not. A, it's not an active grow. There's no processed marijuana. There's no plants. There's no nothing. So, how do you know there was a grow? Based on the light lighting and everything that you see in a typical grow, the lights, the buckets, all that stuff. But there's nothing here. Um, they're taking it down and getting ready, probably to sell it. I guess would be my guess. To sell the house, you to mean sell, to sell the grow equipment? Oh, the equipment. And so, what did you find when you went inside? Just that. It's a typical normal house that you'd find furniture and then one grow room that's been dismantled and being taken down. That's all. It's a good-sized house, but there was just one grow in the basement, and that's it. Any people? Just two people. And they do live here, and they were the people I thought would be here. But, um, again, there's nothing criminal to charge them with at this point. This is the first one we've had where there's been absolutely nothing here whatsoever. In the in the 60 we've done this year so far, in the 40, some we did last year. This is the first one where there's been absolutely nothing at the house. So the bust was a bust. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. All that waiting. No cannabis at all on site. But that may not be a coincidence. How so? Remember how we talked about the root of the problem being the medical marijuana legalization? Yes. The fact that you could grow 99 plants at home legally and law enforcement had trouble because it was legal to grow so much in your own house. Right. You didn't look like you were just growing a legal product. Well, the law finally changed, effective in January. And that, the sheriff says, is already making a huge difference. Now the limit for the vast majority of people is 12 plants. From 99 to 12, you can grow 24 with a bunch of medical exemptions. 
So it becomes maybe much more obvious to law enforcement when their big problem grows. That's my sense. And it means Colorado's a less attractive place if you want to grow a huge quantity of marijuana without anybody stepping in. And that's probably what happened in El Paso County. Now, they are leaving in droves because they know we're coming after them. And again, these are not commercial grows. These are not the grows that are feeding the Colorado medical or retail consumption market. These are grows that are shipping vast amounts of marijuana out of state. How do you know they're leaving? How do I know the growers are leaving? Mm -hmm. We're finding more and more of the known grow houses are vacant. We're finding more and more um, children, migrant children being withdrawn from local school districts. Um, As we execute warrants, we're finding that there is more and more of these homes that are abandoned or – and they never come back. We never see them again. So it sounds like this is a real dent in the black market. Is that true? It sure sounds like it to me too. Like there's potential that people will go grow elsewhere Uh and that things are moving in the right direction from a law enforcement point of view. That this big loophole has been closed and it's having an effect. Mm-hmm. And there's the state money to help enforce. I remember earlier this year, Colorado's Governor John Hickenlooper told a reporter at the site coloradopolitics.com that he thought the black market would be gone in a few years. And I asked him about that recently to see if he stood by that statement. Hmm. And he didn't really. He said basically... I didn't have all the information then I have now, and maybe it'll take more like five years. I mean, honestly, I don't see how anybody can put a number on it at this point. But with the change in this plant count law and the new state enforcement, people are noticing a difference. There was one more thing I wanted to ask Sheriff Elder about. I suppose someone listening to this might say, well, this would all be erased if every state allowed marijuana. Because then you wouldn't have these, you know, different markets in different states, illegal and, and, and legal. What do you think? You may be right. But, you know, until it is legal throughout the United States and legal federally, this will continue to be a problem. I suspect that now that uh, some of the other states like California are going to have the same issues, we will see some of the grows here go away and move to those states where their grow, outdoor grow cycles are, are greater because if they're not paying for uh, the electricity necessary to make these grows, their ROI is much higher. That is to say if they can grow them outside year-round. Correct. Yeah. Well, would, would you want the federal government to act on, on this and no. say no? No. No. I am, a, I am a staunch opponent to marijuana. But the fact of the matter is those that did vote voted and it's in favor. And so we have to follow the rule of the law unless we can overturn the constitutional amendment. I want to say that Sheriff Elder is up for re-election this year. And the first thing on his campaign website under his accomplishments is taking a tough stand on illegal marijuana grows in El Paso County. Well, Rachel, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. CPR's Rachel Estabrook. Tomorrow, I'll go on a tour of three marijuana businesses. Only one of them directly touches the plant. Mostly it was cubicles and conference rooms, like at a Denver payroll firm that specializes in pot. 
A friend of mine owned a dispensary. He had been dropped by six different payroll companies because his business touched cannabis. That's tomorrow. Two well-known people took their own lives last week, but the attention they got doesn't tell the story of the 1,100 people who killed themselves in Colorado in 2016. That's the last year numbers are available. Nor does it explain why the suicide rate is up by more than 34 percent in Colorado since 1999. It's according to new numbers from the Centers for Disease Control. We're going to meet a woman now who deals with people in crisis every day and helps them out of it. Eileen Barker is vice President of Acute Services for the All Health Network. Eileen, welcome to the program. Thank you. A few years back, Colorado created a network of walk-in centers, and you work at one of them in Littleton. What kind of emotional state are the folks in when they walk through your doors? A great variety. One of the things um, that I want to say is that this issue has no barriers. So it really affects people from all different backgrounds, all different economic backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds. Um, It's everywhere. And so uh, we see pretty much everyone. What do you think leads to the kinds of hopelessness Mm -hmm. that prompt Mm -hmm. people to walk into a crisis center, uh, again, which the state has several of? Yeah, we see a variety of issues. And so commonly, um, it could be individuals who've had a recent trauma in their lives, a recent, um, maybe a relationship issue. Oftentimes, if someone's lost their job or become homeless, that can trigger an event. Okay, these can be economic for sure. Sure, sure. Sometimes we see individuals who have severe and persistent mental illness and just aren't doing well. And actually, there are a lot of people with severe and persistent mental illness who deal with this issue daily. Some people struggle and battle with these thoughts for years, every day, trying not to attempt suicide. And so we're, we help many people over and over who continue to deal with these issues. Okay, so sometimes it's uh, folks who come in multiple times, and sometimes it's newcomers, in other words. Definitely. Uh That's why there's no way to predict. We also um, see a lot of people who have substance use issues. So we've all heard about the opioid epidemic that's going on in our country right now. And so there seems to be a correlation with that as well. We have a high number of people who use substances who um, come into our services. And so um, sometimes, you know, the use of substances can lower inhibitions and help trigger an attempt. And so that that sometimes happens as well. So there seems to be some correlation with that. That is, the the drug use might make you more likely to contemplate suicide and, yes. and, and perhaps even uh, to take your own life. Especially there's uh, during intoxication, individuals uh, combined with the substance use and maybe relationship issues, uh, maybe threaten or attempt uh, suicide. But yet later when they become sober, that, that changes a little bit. The the feeling of dread or yes. hopelessness perhaps lifts somewhat. This is a Absolutely. dimension of the opioid crisis that hadn't occurred to me. It is. It is. Also, veterans is another group that we have to consider. About 22 veterans a day commit suicide in this country. And so that's a group that's at very high risk. And so attention needs to, to go there as well. But yeah, hopelessness is one of the, the greatest predictors or factors when you're looking at someone who might attempt suicide. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because I think that so many of us 
are hungry for what the signs are. Is there something specific that we can look out for? You say hopelessness is one of those. What what does that look like? Uh, Lots of my friends are sad, but aren't necessarily considering ending their own lives. Really, your your thinking changes at that point. And it's really almost something I call tunnel vision or being in the well. And so you get into the depths of despair. And really, at that point, it's very difficult to see other options or other alternatives. It's like this tunnel vision. And you can focus on those those thoughts primarily. And so, so what might that look and sound like to someone around mm-hmm. that person? Um, it can vary, and that's the hard part, is sometimes a person could be quiet. It's a change from their normal functioning. Individuals might give items away. They might talk about death more frequently. Uh, if someone is displaying some of those signs, the thing that I would want to say and what people to know is to ask. If you have anyone in your life that you might be concerned about, ask the question. The question. The question. Are you thinking about suicide? and ask that plainly. And so that's one of the things that people are so afraid of. Oh, no, if I ask, I might trigger them to think about suicide or I might make them attempt suicide. But that's not true. If they're thinking it, they're already thinking about it. So your question is not a trigger. Don't be afraid to ask. Never be afraid. So I gather you do that at these walk-in centers. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's uh-huh. that's part of our evaluation process. Are you thinking about suicide? How would you attempt suicide? What would you use? Those are we we get down to to those topics, and and that's the best thing to do. What would you use? Yeah, that is to say, you want them to explore the specificity. You want to see how how specific they've gotten in their own mind. That's probably a way to tell where on the spectrum they are. Sure. It's a way we evaluate. If a person has a plan, a means, and intent to to complete a suicide, they're at higher risk. Sometimes people come in with a more vague idea about suicide, so that's a little bit lowered risk. So we have to measure risk and look at intensity of risk. When someone, let's say, is very far along in their thinking... What is it that you can do to restore enough hope mm-hmm. that the tunnel vision lifts? Yeah, a combination of things. Sometimes it involves um, starting a new medication and intensive therapy, definitely uh, support for the person. If you're a friend or a family member to someone who's going through this, listening and being there for that person without judgment is what they need. So often when people are in depressed states, people try to cheer them up by saying, you know, just pick yourself up by your bootstraps Uh or you should be grateful for what you have. Those are completely not helpful things to say to someone who's suffering. There's a real pain that goes with this. And being non-judgmental is is huge. You actually might end up making them feel badly about feeling badly. Absolutely. And that's what you're trying to avoid. Yes, yes. With these walk-in centers, uh, which are, 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 I guess, unevenly placed around the state, because rural areas have harder access to these kinds of services, I think. Absolutely. Is it most often that someone is walking themselves into the center or that a friend or a family member is saying, listen, I, I think it's time to, to walk in. Often they're by themselves, um, often family members, significant others, as well as police departments, law enforcement help help people day on a day-to-day basis. So these walk-in centers are being used by law enforcement as well yes. when they encounter people on their beats. Yes, a large number of police visits really uh, deal with mental health issues. When you see high-profile suicides mm-hmm. like we did last week, um, does it concern you that there will be copycats, that people will feel emboldened? 
Sometimes it, it brings it to the forefront, certainly. My hope is that it brings it to the forefront in a positive way so that we can talk about it. Mental illness is something that in in this country we don't often talk about or we talk about it in terms of um, other people. And really it affects each one of us. And so we have to begin those conversations. Everybody I have ever talked to who works in mental health, Eileen, talks about the stigma associated with it. Yes. And we continue to fight it. I've worked in this field for 25 years and it's something we still deal with. We don't look at mental health issues the same way we look at physical health issues. And there, that's part of the access problem. It's so difficult. People have to jump through a lot of hoops to get the care they need. And it's scrutinized much more by insurance companies, by government entities. And it's, mm. it's looked at differently because you can't see it. You can't do an x-ray. That is, there's something about the system that may be fueling the stigma. Sometimes. Down to insurance. That's an interesting point. Sometimes. Yes. Sp- speak to that urban-rural divide in the mm-hmm. access to care for just a bit. Yeah, I think that's common across the nation. I've worked in um, other states, other state as well, and... Um, you see that there's a big divide between the urban areas who receive a lot of resources in almost every state. I mean, and, I, I noticed that there are mm-hmm. only three walk-in clinics in the southeast part of the state. Mm-hmm. That covers 22 counties and I think just one on the western slope in Grand Junction. Absolutely. So people who uh, may have transportation issues have a lot more difficult time accessing care. You maybe can call, but when you're scheduled for an appointment to come in and it might be an hour or two hours away, that, that's a huge struggle and a huge hardship for people. We mentioned that increase in the suicide rate, according to the CDC. So 25 percent nationwide since 1999. Uh, and in Colorado, again, about 34 mm. percent in that same span of time. You've been doing this work for decades now. What's fueling this, do you think? That's a question that I wish I had the answer to. And I really don't think anyone has that that pat answer right now. I do believe it's a combination of factors. So again, looking at our veteran populations, the opioid crisis. Also, we live in a highly stressful environment in this country. People have huge demands on them daily and huge pressures. Um, And those pressures, I'll say, in my own life, I can speak to that, (laughs) are sort of amplified by the fact that we're so often carrying our work and our stressors with us in the form of those phones, which I suppose could also be a resource. Absolutely. It it works both ways. Uh There are some great apps for mental health issues as well. But yeah, it's it's a lot of pressure in our society. We don't take uh, a large number of days off like people in Europe do. We don't take as much vacation time. We're pu- we push ourselves quite a bit in this country. Almost literal mental health days. Eileen, yes. thanks for being with us. We appreciate your sharing your perspective. Thank you so much. Eileen Barker, Vice President of Acute Care Services for All Health Network. That organization contracts with Colorado Crisis Services. And there is a 24-hour helpline uh, at one 493 8255. We'll post that number later today to CPR.org.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. National politics came to Denver over the weekend in the form of the Western Conservative Summit. That event draws people from all around the country. Prominent members of the Trump administration were headliners, Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Scott Pruitt of the EPA. Well, CPR's Allison Sherry was there to hear what Sessions in particular had to say and what the crowd thought of it. And Allison, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thank you. It seems a bit remarkable that Sessions, who has made no secret of his strong negative views of marijuana, would actually come here to the state with the oldest recreational industry. Did he address pot in his speech? He did not. You know, in his speech to the thousand plus people, generally Sessions steered clear of the hot button issues that includes marijuana. He also didn't acknowledge the supportive statements President Trump has made recently about states' rights and marijuana legalization. And those statements came after a bill by Senator Cory Gardner introduced that would protect states' marijuana rules from federal interference. Now, we did get a chance at Colorado Matters to talk with Sessions while he was in town, and he emphasized that until federal law changes, marijuana is illegal, but he also said that the Justice Department has a lot of other demands on it. Uh, That interview at CPR.org. Well, if marijuana wasn't a focus of the speech Friday, what was, Allison? Well, you know, Sessions is the top law enforcement officer in the country, and he talked mostly about his agency's crackdown on violent crime. He specifically mentioned a focus on MS-13. This is an international criminal gang with ties to Latin America. You know, since he's taken the helm of the Department of Justice, he's added 300 additional federal prosecutors. And he talked about this cooperation between the United States and Latin American governments to prosecute more than 4,000 MS-13 gang members in the Western Hemisphere. He also talked about the opioid epidemic, how seriously his agency is taking the crisis. He noted that DOJ has prosecuted more than 6,500 opioid-related crimes in the past year. That includes doctors who are over-prescribing pills in certain communities. Sessions is also at the center of the Justice Department's crackdown on illegal immigration and on asylum seekers, frankly. What did he have to say about that? You know, in his speech, he didn't talk about some of the administration's more controversial policies surrounding immigration enforcement, including separating families at the border and the large number of people showing up at the border seeking asylum from dangerous places in Latin America. He did lament sanctuary jurisdictions, but he declined to call out any specific town or city in Colorado or elsewhere. Even though Denver is where he was and and clearly looming in the background. I understand, in fact, Denver's mayor, Michael Hancock, took advantage of Sessions being in town to try to make some of his own points on this issue, immigration. That's true. You know, Hancock has been sparring with the Trump administration about immigration for a while. Sessions has said he will withhold federal funding from places he considers sanctuary cities. And Denver's actually waiting some federal money right now. It goes to law enforcement. And it's not 100 percent clear if the delays are because of the city's immigration policies. But Hancock's spokeswoman said he took the time during Sessions' speech to urge the administration to free up that money. Hancock said, quote, with the attorney general in town, we thought he'd hear us a little more clearly. You talked to people attending the Western Conservative Summit over the weekend about the Trump administration's immigration policies. I wonder what you heard from the sort of party faithful. Yeah, you know, people were largely supportive of the Trump administration's crackdown on illegal immigration, both at the border and also trying to root out undocumented immigrants living in the United States. At the summit, I ran into State Representative Kimmy Lewis. She represents a rural district in southeastern Colorado. She listened to Sessions' speech, and uh, this is what she had to say. It seems like immigration has come to a head now because President Trump has 
made it part of his ambition to get it straightened out. But most of the presidents that we've had, either side of the aisle, have kind of looked the other way. The issue of illegal border crossers and asylum seekers separated from their children has certainly got a lot of attention in the press in recent weeks. Were people at the summit talking about it? You know, one person I really got into it with was Arapahoe County District Attorney George Brockler. He had he gave a speech at the summit, but he's also the Republican running for attorney general. And he walked this interesting line between supporting a zero-tolerance approach to securing the border, but also sort of acknowledging that he's squeamish about taking kids away from their parents. Um, look, it's uh, the optics of it are horrible. The humanity of it is troubling because I have kids. I have four kids. And the idea of them being separated from me by any person or government would rip my heart apart. But I also say this. They put their kids in that position. Again, he is running for state AG, Brockler. And uh, did you hear similarly conflicted sentiments from the, the other attendees at the summit? You know, not really. You know, the activists I talked to seem more focused on the importance of cracking down on border crossers. Um, This is artist Dolezal, an Aurora resident, talking about it. There's too many people that have been waiting in line and paying lots of money to become citizens, and yet we have people coming in illegally. And then when we have to separate the families, we're blamed. And this was a common sentiment, frankly, among the more rank and file, the party faithful, as you say, attendees of the summit. There wasn't a lot of discussion about separating families at the border as an individual policy, but a lot of support for what people perceive as new action by this administration to crack down on illegal immigration. Thanks, Allison. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's Allison Sherry. She covers justice and immigration for CPR. A growing wildfire in southwest Colorado forced more people from their homes over the weekend. Of the 416 fire, officials say the situation is going to get worse before it gets better. Firefighting is grueling work. It's not just hoses, but axes and shovels and heavy gear and hot weather. So where do wildland firefighters turn when their axe is busted or their jacket tears? Well, in Lakewood, there's a massive warehouse that stocks more than $6 million worth of gear. It's called the Rocky Mountain Interagency Support Cash. And I chatted with Ron Roth, a spokesman there in 2012 at the height of Colorado's High Park Fire. Ron, thanks so much for chatting with us. Oh, my pleasure. What is the item you're most often distributing to firefighters? Most often it's uh, going to be uh, the Nomex gear. If they don't have uh, gear with them or if they have dirty gear, they can trade it in for new gear, the the green pants, the yellow shirts. Okay, you call that Nomex. Yes, it's a flame retardant material. Um, We have that for the safety of our firefighters. And so you're serving not just Colorado, but how many other states? Uh, We're serving uh, five states here. What are some of the other, I don't know, perhaps surprising items you've got on, on hand? Well, the cash has uh, everything that you would need basically to set up a small city, anywhere from cots to blankets down to uh, gloves, uh, hard hats, those types of things. Uh, the cash is a kind of a one-stop shop uh, where we keep a, a supply of pumps, hose, nozzles, uh, shelters. Uh, hopefully we don't have to use those shelters, but uh, in the sake of safety, every firefighter on the line has to carry a fire shelter with them. Now, when you say shelters, I'm picturing something like a tent. What do you you mean by shelters? And that's basically what it is. It's uh, about the size of a very small pup tent, um, and they're made out of uh, aluminum material, and there's some other uh, 
materials in there. I'm not an expert on their construction, but uh, it's designed to reflect heat away from you and protect you in case you find yourself in a predicament where the fire's coming at you and you have no place to retreat to. Uh, the firefighter will uh, prepare the ground, get any flammable material off the ground, and then deploy the shelter and crawl underneath it and wait for the fire to pass over him. It still, of course, gets extremely hot in there, but these have saved firefighters? Yes, um, it is extremely hot inside that shelter, but it's probably 10 times hotter outside that shelter, and there's no way you're going to survive outside it. Uncomfortable? Yes, uh, extremely uncomfortable. I've never been in one. I've talked to people that have. Uh, They say it's uh, very scary, very intimidating. It sounds like you're laying right next to a train as it's rolling by you. And how long might you be in there? Uh, there's times where people will be in there 40 minutes, possibly even up to an hour. You wait till it's the flame front has completely passed. Which firefighters are you supplying? In other words, if there's a fire in my backyard and I'm with that department, I imagine I would just go to the station to get stuff. Right. right? And typically the lo- local agency will have their gear. When they respond, they respond with their gear. Um, but uh, when you get these big, complex uh, fires like we have now, you know, these guys are out on the line working 12, sometimes 14 hours a day, and things happen. You know, accidents happen. Uh, they may slip and fall, and equipment gets damaged. And uh, if you show up, and for whatever reason, uh, let's say uh, it's your first fire of the season, and you put on a few extra pounds, and your pants that you had last year that fit don't fit, you can swap them out for a size up. And at the end of the fire, when it's time for you to go home, you turn them back. If you don't, then they'll track you down and send you a bill. Take me to that event, okay? So someone who, for instance, was fighting the High Park fire, mm-hmm. um, their, um, their axe breaks. Is that something that would happen? It's potentially, okay. yes. It can happen. Okay. So yeah. um, word comes from the side of the fire, and what, the phone rings there? Like, walk me through that. Well, they're in radio communication, and um, if a piece of it, let's say in your example, the axe breaks, well, then uh, we need a new one. You know, hopefully he's got enough extra tools uh, in their truck that they came out with that they can get through the rest of the day. But that night when they come back to camp, they'll go to the supply cache, and they'll have a small tent set up there with a, a supply of equipment. And they'll say, hey, here's my broken axe. And the guy will say, okay, and he'll swap him out for a new one. So you've got little remote sites where there are fires. Well, at the camp, at the incident command post, they have a fire camp. Um, all the planning folks are setting up there, uh, developing a strategic plan on how to attack this fire. And uh, they also have a supply tent there. And so stuff isn't necessarily coming from your facility in Lakewood. You've, you've put extra materials at various fire sites. Correct. And uh, they're all those fire sites that have those supply tents, they get their equipment from the cache that we have here. Are you a federal agency? Yes. Okay. And there are other caches, I presume, in other regions of the country. Yes, they have them strategically placed throughout the United States. So when something like this happens, we've got those assets readily available to come out and support and augment the whatever effort it is, whether it's a firefighter, a hurricane, tornado, flood. Ron, thanks so much for chatting with us. Oh, my pleasure. Ron Roth speaking with us in 2012 about the Rocky Mountain Interagency Support Cache in Lakewood. It supports wildland firefighters around the West. 
Before we go, maybe you know that for the first time, unaffiliated voters can take part in this month's primary elections. And these voters will get two ballots in the mail, one Democrat, one Republican. They have to pick one. And it got us wondering, if you're unaffiliated, how did you choose which ballot to fill out? Was it that you lean towards one party over another? It's a particular race or candidate you're interested in? Share your thoughts. News at CPR.org for how you picked which ballot to fill out. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.